Truth Tank. I am your host, The Tank. So, welcome back to the show. How's everyone been? Everyone feeling good? Lockdowns are starting to ease around the world, apart from here, but we're starting to go back into lockdowns because of the Delta strain that has broken out all around the country. What can you do? The government's just proven that they're a useless bunch of pricks. So I guess we just have to deal with it, put up with the restrictions, and hope they don't last for too long. If you're overseas listening to this, that probably doesn't mean a hell of a lot to you. The rest of the world seems to have handled the vaccination process a lot better than we have, so what can you do? Although it is pretty hypocritical because you can have 55,000 people at a NRL game for the state of origin, but you can't have 150 people at a wedding or a funeral, so go figure. I guess the government only really cares about restrictions when money's at stake. Can't cancel a rugby league game because you might lose too much money. I have 28 episodes and I am still talking about King Herod. And tonight's episode is going to be no different. This is going to be part six of the very epic saga of King Herod the Great. There's only a few more episodes I'll be doing on King Herod. I hope you're not getting too bored with it already. But I promise that I've only got a couple more left. Two, three at the most. Tonight's episode is going to be a continuation to where we last left Herod. We finished our look at the Second Temple Complex. So on tonight's episode, we're going to be having a look at some of the civil projects in and around Jerusalem, such as the amphitheater, the water channels. On the second part of the episode, we're going to be having a look at one of Herod's more personal projects, one of his more well-known ones, and that is Herodium, the fortress on a hill. Alright, so without further ado, let's get into tonight's show. This is episode 28, King Herod Part 6. Okay, so just before we begin tonight, I do apologize for any audio issues, if there is any. I uh, had a bit of a microphone mishap, so the audio might be a little bit off. I do apologize, I hope it's not too bad, but unfortunately these things happen and you have to push through. Enough fucking around, let's jump straight into Herod. So Herod didn't just build lavish temples and palaces, he also built various civil projects that upgraded and modernized the city of Jerusalem. And as we've seen on previous episodes, this is a very volatile city that is pretty reluctant to change. So any modernization attempts or Hellenization attempts were met with quite a bit of opposition. But at the same time, it's because of these modernization attempts and Herod's vision that made Jerusalem what it was. And a lot of his structures, a lot of Herod's building projects are still standing today, which is a testament not only to his his creative vision, but also to the building techniques of the time. They haven't been completely destroyed by war over the centuries, and they are still standing. So some of the civil projects Herod constructed included a amphitheater, a hippodrome, a theater, cleansing pools, a water drainage channel, and a pilgrimage road. Unfortunately, not a lot is known about these building projects. The pools are being found as well as the water channel, but the amphitheater theater and hippodrome still remain a bit of a mystery. There hasn't been a lot of physical evidence or proof found to their existence or where they might have been in the city. It's a safe bet to say that they probably did exist. A lot of our records come from Josephus and so far he hasn't led us astray. In a lot of Josephus's accounts he does mention these buildings and does confirm their existence but as to where they might have been located is still a mystery and like I mentioned there hasn't been a lot of physical evidence or proof found. There's been a few bits and pieces found, but nothing 
substantial enough in the archaeological records to to say yay or nay to the exact whereabouts of these buildings. So the Pool of Salome of Salome was part of the temple expansion and has been mentioned on a previous episode. The pools existed before Herod's expansion of the second temple and had been built and had been built up and rebuilt centuries before and after the second temple period. There was apparently a hippodrome in Jerusalem, but as to where it might have been still remains a mystery. There's also not a lot of proof to it existing. Whenever I searched for the hippodrome in Jerusalem, I would always end up getting the results for the hippodrome in Caesarea. The hippodrome in Caesarea has been found. It's a pretty hard thing to hide. It's huge. It is a massive building built right next to the coast. We'll be looking at the hippodrome in more detail on the next episode. I couldn't really find much information on the hippodrome in Jerusalem. Just rumors of it. Josephus, as far as I could tell, doesn't really confirm it. It's more stated that there was a hippodrome in Jerusalem at some point. With saying that, most of the other hippodromes that have been found around the world are are still there. They're pretty permanent structures built of stone and marble. They also required quite a bit of space in order to build them. It's not like you could just have a, a simple wooden structure that got lost to time. These were pretty significant structures. And it would be very difficult to try and hide it in a city as crowded as Jerusalem. So let's move along. One structure that has been found and is still in use is the Jerusalem Water Channel. It's another part of the puzzle that is worth mentioning. As the name suggests, it's a water channel. It's basically a giant guttering system that sits underneath the city streets. The channel is roughly about a kilometre long and has a series of manholes dotted around the top of it for easy access. So fitting in with the other buildings of the day, it was also made of stone, just like everything else we've seen so far. And it is an integral part of Jewish history. The water channel had a pretty important job. It was more or less a giant drainage system that handled the exiting of the city's water runoff, wastewater as well as the water for the Second Temple. The water channel wasn't exactly built by Herod, So much like a lot of other projects that were in and around the city, a lot of civil projects and a lot of parts and pieces of the Second Temple, they weren't all built or rebuilt by Herod. They were originally built by the Hasmoneans. Archaeologists have found the original plaster of the drainage system. They've also found a series of coins from that era confirming the date and existence of the channel. It must have been a pretty significant size. They also must have given it the same amount of care and treatment as any other building in the in Jerusalem it was plastered it wasn't just you know like raw uncut stone they spent a significant amount of time and effort trying to make it look as good as possible even though it was just a water system it's also a pretty decent size which should give us a pretty clear indication of the amount of rainfall there was in ancient Jerusalem I know it probably doesn't seem like much today it probably doesn't I don't think it rains a hell of a lot in Jerusalem and you'd probably think that it's a bit overkill for a city that is built in the middle of, the, of a desert to have such a large water channel. But obviously they needed it. Obviously there was a reason it had to be built to that size and those specifications. I mean, it's one kilometer long. It'd probably be pretty similar to some of the guttering and the big water channels they have in Los Angeles. Those big concreted, well, essentially a huge 
concrete gutter that you know goes down and branches off into several different directions like the one from terminator 2 where they're having the the bike and the truck chase through i mean los angeles is a city that doesn't exactly rain a hell of a lot but they have a massive guttering system this is obviously a need for it at some point you could also surmise that the channel in jerusalem was also to prevent flooding there's a pretty flat surrounding area so the risk of flood was probably pretty high if you had a decent amount of rainfall and you didn't exactly want to spend all this time and effort making this you know world-class temple only to have it flood it also drained the water from the pools as i mentioned on a earlier show you'd go into one of these pools to get cleansed before entering the temple and whether these pools were emptied daily or weekly because you have to imagine the water would be pretty filthy by the end of a week by the end of a month it would probably be you know, unusable as i mentioned on a previous episode there is a theory that the pools naturally drained and refilled themselves by an underground channel or an underground river of some sort it hasn't been a hundred percent proven but it is a it is the main theory of how the pool about how the water in the pools replenishes itself unless you're going to send a team of guys down there every couple of days with buckets to try and get out all the water and replace it that would be a huge logistical task it'd be an absolute nightmare to pull off considering how many people would have needed those pools on a daily basis it'd be pretty fucking gross so this would be a natural alternative to cleaning and refilling the water so as i mentioned the hasmoneans originally built the water channel herod like a lot of the things in and around the second temple complex he either rebuilt or expanded it Herod built and added to the water channel. He added a bypass that connected to the temple. So obviously this bypass was to take any type of rainwater from the temple and drain it back into the channel. We know Herod built this bypass because Josephus confirms it. He also gives us the location to the drainage system. I know it's just a water channel and a civil project, but why is Herod Herod doing this? He's doing this to modernize the city. It's also a vital part of civil construction. If you can't drain water from a city, it's going to flood. This is a problem that most places around the world have experienced at least once in their history. This happens, you know, yearly at some places. And this is the this is the modern day. This is the 21st century, and we still have problems with getting larger large amounts of wastewater out of an area quickly. The other thing about Herod's building projects, especially his civil construction projects was that it kept people busy, it kept people in work, it's prevented revolts and rebels from rising up against you, everyone was happy, well mostly, everyone had work, they had a purpose, they had something to do, they got paid, and they got fed. There's no point rioting or rebelling if you're getting a pretty decent deal. And unlike the temple that relied mostly on highly trained craftsmen and the, and the priests doing a lot of the stonemason work on the actual temple, Civil projects could be fulfilled by ordinary workers. They didn't have to be specially trained or they didn't have to be priests or members of an elite group. They could just be anybody and, you know, you could have been trained on the job. There was a hell of a lot of building going on, which required a massive workforce. Logistics would have been a nightmare trying to organize all the workers and all the construction materials to have them delivered at site so there wasn't delays and, you know, roadblocks getting in the way. So the really cool thing about the water channel is during the siege of jerusalem the water channel provided shelter for thousands of jewish people escaping the onslaught of the romans 
The channel housed a diverse mix of people from around Jerusalem. You can imagine that it was probably filled with families, rebels, civilians, or whoever else wanted to seek refuge from the Romans. In the months before the fall of the city, the water channel was a safe haven from the war going on above ground. The siege of Jerusalem lasted for months, and the Romans pretty much surrounded the entire city and forced a lot of people to retreat to the temple for safety and pushed a lot of people underground in the channels. That also gives us a pretty clear indication to the size of the water channels. They must have been huge if they could fit thousands of people in them. In World War II, we see a very similar thing with people living in the subway tunnels during the Blitz. It's not the first or the last time that tunnels have saved people in times of war. And once again, this is confirmed in the history books by Josephus. Josephus describes a place of refuge in War of the Jews, which is generally thought to be the water channel, and it kind of makes sense because it probably would have been the only place around that resembled a underground tunnel system that close to the temple or to Jerusalem. There has been ash found on some of the walls of the channel system that is believed to be the fires that were set by the Romans in the tunnels to burn out the survivors and force them back up to the surface. Imagine if you're a shelter seeker or a refugee hiding in these tunnels and it's getting pretty late in the siege. The Romans have entered the city. They're starting to you know, conquer and destroy large sections of the city. They've sussed out that you're in the tunnels and now they're going to burn you out. Just imagine what, how terrifying that would be. You've been hiding under there for months in the relative you know, safety of the subterranean tunnels and all of a sudden now the Romans come knocking on the front door and they start trying to burn you out and you know what are your options suffocate from smoke inhalation get wiped out by a roman patrol in the tunnels only to be forced to the surface to find a city engulfed in flames and a city surrounded by romans so it's a pretty it's a lose-lose situation unless you could you know find a hidden tunnel or you could you know get out somewhere hide in the shadows take out a roman patrol escape that way but to what ends? The entire city was surrounded by the Romans at this point. You couldn't exactly just wander off into the desert without someone seeing you. All points of the city were closed, so it wouldn't have been a very good way to go. On the other hand, it must have also been equally as scary for the Romans. Imagine being the um, patrol that draws a short straw on that one. Imagine having to, c- to command people to go down into the tunnels. You know, we're going to go down and burn out the survivors... That was just as equally as dangerous because you never know what was down in the tunnels. You could have been ambushed by rebels, could have slipped over, ended up in the water, drowned. Who knows? So let's come back to the surface for a minute. On the top of the water channel lies the steep street, which was later named the Jerusalem Pilgrimage Road. Out of all the civil projects I've mentioned so far, the Pilgrimage Road is probably one of the more interesting ones. In a nutshell, the road connected the temple to the pools. The street wasn't built by Herod and it doesn't really connect back to him in any way. But it is tied to the colourful history of the temple. The steep street was more or less a big steep street that connected the southwest corner of the temple complex to the southern gates of the city running along the old city of David, along the western wall and arriving under Robinson's Arch. This is the same area that where the marketplace was located, A traveller would pass through the gates via the Pool of Siloam before continuing their journey up to the temple. There's a pretty clear 
and a very obvious ritual significance going on. In order to get to the temple, you would have to pass through a gate, which involved cleansing oneself in the pools before you could take the 600 meter journey up to the temple. This is pretty similar to what we see when you enter the temple. You have to proceed up the staircase, you cross the portal. Once you've crossed through the gates, you enter an underground vault before proceeding up the stairs, which takes you to the courtyard of the temple, the holy ground. Like most things in archaeology, there is always some contention and some contradiction with dates and just who exactly built what. The steep street is no different, and it is another piece of the puzzle that wasn't built by Herod. But it has been overlaid with the history of Jerusalem and the many projects related to the Second Temple. So if Herod didn't build it, who did? The most likely candidate to build the steep street or the pilgrimage road was Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is most likely the one responsible for the street's construction. The generic timeline of the construction is between Herod the Great and his grandson Herod the Gripper, 37 BC to 66 CE. 66 CE, you can probably pretty safely rule out because this is pretty much the same year as the siege of Jerusalem was going on. So I don't think there'd be too many civil projects being built. It would have had to be completed before the siege. There is a very small clue that rules out Herod Agrippa being the one responsible for building the street. That very small clue is the lack of coins that were produced with images of him on it. The completion date of the street would be around about 40 to 1 CE, and there are just no coins from before then with him on them. This tells us pretty clearly that he started minting his coins in 40 to 1 BC and not before. This also points to Pontius Pilate being the most likely candidate for the job. There's another detail that gives us another clue. It also fits with the character of Pilate. Like Herod, Pilate was a builder. He was known to have built a few things during his time, and he also helped pave the way for a modern Romanized Jerusalem. He signed off on various civil projects that were in the public interest during his time in office. And one of them, I think we can probably pretty safely say, was the street. He commissioned it to make it easier for temple goers to access the temple. Purely and simply, this is pretty much just to keep the worshippers happy. Just to make their procession to the temple as easy as possible. But that also does bring up the question is why didn't Herod think of it? He had thought of everything else so far with his engineers and his builders. So how did he miss a essentially a walkway to the temple? You would have thought that would be pretty important. However, you know, he's only human, he may have overlooked it. Everyone else might have been so anxious or caught up with trying to build the temple and pull that off that they might have just simply overlooked the the street, or they might have run out of money. Who knows? In building the street, Pilate does demonstrate a genuine care for his subjects. He also proves that he is loyal to Rome and its interests. He's also trying to get as many Jewish locals on site as possible. He's trying to get them to see that Romanization and modernization is a good thing. Rome is trying to mold Jerusalem in its in its image, and Pilate is trying to help this transition along by getting as many locals on site as possible. Pilate is also known, well, besides the sentencing of Jesus to death, 
he is known for keeping peace and order in Jerusalem, and it was a pretty tough job. He got the job because he was tough and he was a an old school head kicker. He could get the job done. After Herod had died, the control of Jerusalem had pretty much descended into chaos. His grandsons weren't the leader he was. The building had stopped. There wasn't as much for people to do. A lot of people joined rebellions and rose up against the Romans and the elites that had controlled Jerusalem for a long time. Pilate was brought in to get the situation under control. Pilate also commissioned an aqueduct to be built in the Tiberium in Caesarea, making this street his second project in Jerusalem. Now, obviously, he didn't build as much as Herod, and his achievements pale in comparison, but he did build nonetheless. So I think this pretty securely places Pilate as the builder of the street. It also gives a timeline of around 20 years in which the street was finished. When you think of it, that was, that's a pretty long time to build a 600 meter street. If it only took four years to build the temple and it functioned as an actual temple during this time, you would think that they would be able to build a street in a year, a year and a half. I know it's only a loose timeline, but it did take a considerable amount of time to complete. So this would put the completion date anywhere between 30 to 40 CE, with a start date of around 20 CE. This date roughly fits in with the start of Pilate's reign between 19 CE to 26 CE. So this timeline is kind of coming together. We can see the pattern here. The construction starts around the same as time as his reign. It also seems like it's a pretty good place to start with civil construction. You know, let's make it easier for worshippers to get to the temple. So let's build him a road. Let that be the first thing. Then he builds the aqueduct. It's a pretty natural progression to follow. So the street followed a familiar pattern, one that Herod had used with the steps leading up to the holder gates. The street used two normal steps followed by a larger flat landing step followed by two normal steps, then another landing. This is pretty much exactly the same pattern that the Holdall gates had. They had differing size steps that created a flow or a procession into the temple. This, I think, is doing pretty much the same thing. It's creating a flow and a pace that avoids a congested or a stampede of people all rushing to get to the same place at the same time. Much like the steps leading up to the Holder gates, it forces a pilgrim walking up the road to slow down and think. You're taking a slow control procession. You're not just running up the stairs due to the alternating pattern. Moving along. So next up we have probably the most mysterious building built by Herod. And that is the amphitheater slash theater in Jerusalem. There hasn't been a lot found about the amphitheater. And there's even less that is known about it. There's been no real archaeological finds. Experts are still pretty much stumped as to the location of the amphitheater. I kind of know how they feel because I couldn't find much information on the amphitheater either. And I could f couldn't find anything definitive to say if they were the same building or two separate structures altogether. An amphitheater is a multi-purpose building that can be used for festivals, sports, plays, and a theater is basically just a theater for plays the theater obviously and probably some civil announcements things like that if there's a you know a something happening in the city or a upcoming festival or something like that you could 
probably make the deduction that a theatre might be the might be the stage that a politician or something stands on to tell everybody that a festival's coming up or that they're re-elected and you should vote for them. Yeah, but as I mentioned, I couldn't find any definitive info to, to claim that these were the same building or two separate ones. I'm making an assumption here and I'm going to say that they were probably the same building. It would seem a little wasteful and a little stupid to build an amphitheater then also to build a theater somewhere else unless they were in like two opposite ends of the city that facilitated two different needs the amphitheater is generally described as being a grand structure so you can assume that it's probably of a significant size and scope it also probably looked cool it probably had a regalness to it that a normal theater wouldn't have or maybe there was two separate buildings there could have been a giant grand amphitheater and maybe a medium-sized to a smaller theater built somewhere else that maybe it was just for local plays but going back to what we know about jewish society at the time the conservative jews weren't all too thrilled about plays or displays of sport in public and i don't think a theater would have been high on the priority list of things to build you can understand why Herod would build a amphitheater. He was trying to Romanize and Helena. He was trying to bring Hellenization to Jerusalem, and the Romans did love a theater, and they especially loved an amphitheater. I did find a couple of really interesting things about the amphitheater out when I was doing the research. One of which that it may not have been built out of stone. The general consensus is that the structure was a grand stone structure, like everything else Herod built. It was you know, cut and polished stone, and it was a grand structure. It's always described as being you know, grand or opulent in some way. And that's the other issue, is that if it was made out of stone and it was a fixed structure, it should have been found by now. There should have been some remnant of it found, unless it was obliterated by the Romans or some unknown force. There should be some trace of it somewhere. That also means that it would have to have been a significant size and take up a significant amount of space and there just hasn't been any evidence of that found in Jerusalem it's not exactly a city that has a lot of spare room it's pretty crowded one city gets built upon the other city yeah that could have destroyed any remnants of it but you'd also think that it would have shown up because a lot of the Roman cities that are built in modern population centers they usually do find like the foundations in someone's basement or in a car park somewhere. If it wasn't made of stone, maybe it was made out of wood. Is this why there are so few traces of it left today? That brings up a really good point because if it wasn't stone and it was wood, it would most likely have disappeared with the passing of time. Oh, that also brings up another question. Is was it a impermanent structure as opposed to Herod's other projects that were, no pun intended, set in stone? If it wasn't in permanent structure and it was built out of wood, maybe it moved around. Maybe it um, was built in a non-fixed location and could be broken down and moved around the city whenever they needed theatre space or they had a festival or games or something like that. So why would Perrod go to the effort of building an amphitheatre in a place where they didn't really give two fucks about theatre or sporting pursuits well 
Herod built it to give Jerusalem Greek theatre and games. This is pretty much a novelty event to the largely conservative city. So as we know, Herod spread Hellenism and he spread it through his architecture. Pretty much most buildings he built were somehow Roman-inspired. All of his palaces featured the latest Roman technology and Roman construction methods. He had hot and cold running baths, heated floors. He had the best and latest ornate flooring tiles straight from Rome, as well as some of the most beautiful frescoes of the day. These were all design elements that were very popular with the Roman culture. Herod obviously loved these elements and wanted to incorporate it into as many of the projects as he could. So the amphitheatre is usually described as monumental, but was it just a simple wooden structure modelled after the Roman theatres, which were made of wood? Surprisingly, I didn't actually know this until I started researching it. A majority of Roman theatres and amphitheatres were wooden. They weren't permanent stone structures until much later. So once again, we have to turn to Josephus for some answers. Josephus confirms that a magnificent amphitheatre did exist. He mentions it in the Jewish War and Antiquities of the Jews. So I'm going to read the passages from Josephus to better illustrate the monumentalness of the amphitheatre. Right, so I'm going to read the passage by Josephus. It's taken from Antiquities of the Jews, verse 8.1, 268.81. In the first place, he appointed solemn games to be celebrated every fifth year in honour of Caesar, and built a theatre at Jerusalem, as also a very great amphitheatre. Okay, so this is kind of confirming that there were two separate structures. A theatre at Jerusalem as also a very great amphitheatre. That does shed a little light on the debate on whether they were the one structure or two separate ones. As also a very great amphitheatre in the plain. Both of them were indeed costly works, but opposite to the Jewish customs, for we have had no such shows delivered down to us fit to be used or exhibited by us. Yet did he celebrate these games every five years, in the most solemn and splendid manner. Okay. So, they didn't really like the games that were going on. And it also he also pretty clearly tells us these were costly works. However, he isn't saying yay or nay if it was wood or stone. That is the probably the biggest problem. If they were costly, you'd have to imagine there would be some degree of stone to them. Obviously, wood is probably a hell of a lot easier to use. He's telling us there's two separate structures and that they were both grand, but it's still pretty elusive. It's not telling us if it's wood or stone. Is it a elaborate structure or is it just big? Is it a gigantic wooden structure? Is it a medium-sized stone structure we don't really know at this point it also tells us that it was very much against jewish custom and that they were pretty benevolent to the exhibition of games so he also made proclamation to the neighboring countries and called men together out of every nation so the principal persons that were the most eminent in these sorts of exercises were gotten together for there were very great rewards 
for victory proposed, not only to those that performed their exercises naked, but to those that played the musicians also, and were called Thermeliki. Pretty much a actor or musician. This is pretty much a guild for actors or musicians. Pretty much an actor's union. And he spared no aims to include all persons. The most famous of such exercises to come to this con- contest for victory. He also imitated everything, though never so costly or magnificent. In other nations, out of an ambition that he might give the public demonstration of his grandeur. Inscriptions also of the great actions of Caesar and trophies of those nations which he had conquered in the wars, and all made of the purest gold and silver, encompassed the theatre itself. Nor was there anything that could be subservient to his design, whether it were precious garments or precious stones set in order, which was not also exposed to sight in these games, and truly foreigners were greatly surprised and delighted at the vastness of the expanse he exhibited, and at the great dangers that were here seen. But to natural Jews this was no better than this is no better than, than a disillusion of those customs for which they had so great a veneration. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. So the local Jews don't really seem to give two shits about it. He's telling us a couple of key pieces of information here. It was a pretty grand and opulent place. There was stones. Many nations participated in these games. The rewards to the victors were pretty good. By the sound of it, the local Jewish population didn't give two shits about the games or or any of the exhibitions. He also is praising Caesar quite a lot. He's dedicated a lot of, a lot of this to Caesar. He's also praising himself for his own actions in the war. There's also some pretty nice trophies, apparently. They're all made of the purest gold and silver and encompassed the theatre itself. Nor was there anything that could be subservient in his design, whether it were precious garments, precious stones set in order, which was not also exposed to sight in these games. So maybe they had a trophy cabinet out the back somewhere. Josephus sounds like he knows about it. Kind of sounds like he's seen these things before. Whether they brought them out before the game like you'd get at a football or rugby game. Whenever you have a championship, they usually have a trophy sitting on a podium. Both teams run past it before the game. It disappears during the game and it's brought out for presentations after a winner is declared. This kind of sounds like this is a similar thing that's going on. There's a, a great trophy that can be seen and then it disappears and is a water to the to a victor the problem with a lot of the ancient writings and a lot of these ancient texts is that the language is very hard to understand it's written in a very weird way it's not in today's english it makes decoding what is really being said in some of these passages very hard if you don't have a language degree Back to the passage. It appeared also no better than an instant of braced-faced impiety to throw men to wild beasts for the affording delight to the spectators. 
it appeared an instance of no less impiety to change their own laws for such foreign exercises. But above all rest, the trophies gave most distaste to the Jews. Okay, so people dying didn't, but a trophy did. For as they imagined them to be images included within the armor that hung around about them, they were sorely displeased at them because it was not the custom of the country to pay honors to such images. So he's obviously describing a gladiatorial battle. And the locals aren't too happy about it. It doesn't sound like it's going over very well with not conservative Jews, just with the local Jews. It's not getting the desired effect. He's you know hosting these big expensive games. If you're into Roman history, you would know that the games cost a lot of money. And this is probably money that could be better spent somewhere else. There's also the depictions of gods or humans on armor and this is a very big no-no in jewish culture this isn't frowned upon he's spending a lot of money on games and events that are just not going over with the locals he doesn't understand it and he sounds like he doesn't really care like we saw last year with the corona crowds you have teams playing in an empty stadium that sounds like it's going to happen here if herod doesn't change the format of the entertainment it's pretty interesting. These accounts do give us a bit of a snapshot into everyday life. And the locals don't sound very happy about the entertainment they're receiving. So back to it. Nor was Herod antiquated with the disturbance they were under. And as he thought it unreasonable to use violence with them, so he spoke to some of them by way of consolation. And in order to free them from superstitious fear they were under, yet could not he satisfied them, but they cried out with one accord, out of their great uneasiness at the offences they thought he had been guilty of, that although they should think of bearing all, the rest yet would they never bear images of men in their city. That also would go back to the coins, like forbidden coins that would get exchanged to the temple. You can't have images on them and that was caused a lot of conflict when the Romans came along and started using Roman coinage with depictions of emperors on them. Meaning the trophies because this was disagreeable to the laws of their country. Now when Herod saw them in such a disorder and that they would not easily change their resolution unless they received satisfaction in this point, he called to him the most eminent men among them and brought them upon the theatre and showed them the trophies, and asked them what sort of things they took these trophies to be. And when they cried out that they were the images of men, he gave order that they should be stripped of these outward ornaments, which were about them, and showed them the naked pieces of wood. Which pieces of wood, now without any ornament, became a matter of great sport and laughter to them, because they had before always had the ornaments of images themselves in derision. So he's given some influential members of society a backstage tour to ask what is wrong with the armor. So when they say naked pieces of wood, this is meaning the frame that holds the armor, basically the arm, the armor stand. So this is probably the standard Roman armor. Like the type you'd see in movies with like a, you know, you have a other metal or leather breastplate 
with images of gods, people or animals on them, like the war god Mars or something like that. So it is interesting. So Herod is obviously trying to correct the offenses. He doesn't quite understand why the crowds are so pissed off and he wants to keep everybody happy before things get out of control. So he's meeting with some high-profile men in the community and is trying to understand why they are unhappy with the games. All right, back to it. When, therefore, Herod had thus got clear of the multitude, he had dissipated the vehemency of passion under which they had been. It's a very long and fancy way of saying that he calmed down some very pissed off, emboldened people. The greatest part of the people were disposed to change their conduct and not to be displeased at him any longer, but still some of them continued in their displeasure against him for his introduction of new customs, and esteemed the violation of the laws of their country as likely to be the origin of the very great mischiefs to them, so that they deemed it an instance of piety rather to hazard themselves, basically put them to put to death, than to seem as if they took no notice of Herod, who upon the change he had made in their government introduced such customs, and that in a violent manner which they had never been used to before, as indeed in pretense a king, but in reality one that showed himself an enemy to their whole nation, on which account ten men that were citizens conspired together against him and swore to one another to undergo any dangers in an attempt and took daggers with them under their garments. So this group of men, despite the reparation attempts made by Herod, are still very pissed off at him for changing the laws of the land to allow the games to go ahead in the first place. Herod has changed some Jewish customs laws in order to get the games to go ahead. It also sounds like he has probably gone against the general consensus of the people and probably his advisors, and he has gone ahead and changed the laws anyway to facilitate his Romanesque pursuits. So it does sound like he is doing some dodgy things. He's pissing people off. And it sounds like he's about to pay the consequences. These group of men are coming up with an assassination attempt. They're going to hide daggers under their garments. And they're going to corner Herod in the amphitheater in order to try and kill him. So there is a definite conspiracy going on against Herod. And this is... Also, probably one of the reasons he was so paranoid all the time is he. This is not the first time that someone's tried to kill him. Is he mad or just paranoid? It also brings up the bigger question: Is he mad if people are actually conspiring against him, trying to kill him all the time? I don't think so. I just think he's probably just being safe. Now there was a certain blind man among those conspirators who had thus sworn to one another on account of the indignation he had against what he had heard to have been done. He was not indeed able to afford the rest any assistance in the undertaking, but was ready to undergo any suffering with them. If so, be they should come to any harm, 
insomuch that he became a very great encourager of the rest of the undertakers. When they had taken this resolution, and that by common consent, they went into the theatre, hoping that in the first place Herod himself could not escape them, as they should fall upon him so unexpectedly, and supposing, whoever, that if they missed him, they should kill a great many of those that were about him. And this resolution they took, though they should die for it. In order to suggest to the king what injuries he had done to the multitude, these conspirators, therefore standing thus prepared beforehand, went about the design with great, great alarity. But there was one of those spies of Herod who were appointed for such purposes to fish out and inform him of any conspiracies that should be made against him, who found out the whole affair and told the king of it, and he was about to go into the theatre, and that's where it ends. Is Herod paranoid? Is he mad? Or is he just being smart? He employed a spy against this group of men, and they obviously couldn't be trusted, or they, or they were on Herod's radar and he couldn't trust them, not to be outraged by what he had done, and in in turn he's taken precautions to protect himself. It sounds like these men couldn't be trusted, even though Herod did apologize for it. Yes, he did go change the laws and piss a lot of people off, but it sounds like these guys were going to be pissed off at anything that Herod did, and there was probably no reparations he could have made that were going to fix the situation. It sounded like it was a very smart idea, putting a spy in amongst the conspirators to try and find out what was going on. So they had him cornered in the theatre and were planning on killing him. Obviously it didn't happen. I think I might have briefly mentioned that on another show. I'm not sure if it was the same assassination attempt, but there was another assassination attempt on Herod in the bathhouse, whether the bathhouse was connected to the theatre in any way, I'm not too sure. But a group of men went in to assassinate Herod at the bathhouse. He startled them and caused them to fumble, allowing Herod time to get away, back to the safety of his guards. It also brings up the issue as where were his bodyguards that were probably close by, I mean, I have no idea, I'm just speculating here. They were probably pretty close by. Obviously, they didn't kill him, and it doesn't really say what happened to the conspirators. You can only assume that they were caught and killed, or put to death later on. As for the conspirators, they don't seem to be too concerned about collateral damage. They were just going to kill anyone around Herod just to get to him. They were going to take out any witnesses to it. They weren't afraid of dying or being caught they just wanted Herod gone so badly so it makes you wonder if you have that type of mindset chances are nothing was going to right the wrongs that were apparently done to you in your mind in their mind they had been wronged and they were going to get satisfaction one way or another so Josephus gives us a pretty detailed account of the amphitheater he confirms its existence He's given us a pretty clear indication to the events that are taking place there. The elaborate trophies made out of gold and silver with precious stones around them. The trophy case out the back. He also gives us a pretty clear account of 
the offences caused by Herod in changing the laws to get Roman games approved, more or less, and the events that led up to a group of men conspiring to assassinate him. The one key detail that Josephus does miss is the location of the amphitheatre. Just where is it and what exactly was it made out of? These are two key details that he misses. A lot of sites have been found over the years based on Josephus' accounts. We can make the assumption that Josephus is telling the truth and doesn't have a very good reason to lie based on the fact that a lot of archaeological finds have been based on the accounts of Josephus. So no one really knows for sure the exact location of the theatre. Some say it was inside the city and others say that it was outside of the city walls. So far nothing has been dug up and and unfortunately it gives us no clear indication to the site of the amphitheatre. While I was doing the research for this show I came across a very interesting and enlightening article by a man named Joseph Patrich from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. The quoted Josephus passages I just read out came from his website bibleintrep.arizona.edu. I came across his article. He is one of the leading theorizers in that the theater was made of wood and not stone. Patrick has theorized that the most likely location for the amphitheater was at the mouth of one of the valleys, with the seats being supported by a hill. So rather than leveling off a flat surface to build the seating area, you'll build it up against the wall. This, By doing this, it cuts down on the materials needed in construction and it speeds things up pretty quickly. When I first started researching the amphitheater and I came across the wood theory, I thought, yeah, okay, whatever, that's probably bullshit. Why would they make it out of wood? The more I read into this theory, the more it made sense and the more I started to go with it. If it was wood, it would explain why nothing has been found. The wood may have been burnt in the siege. It could have been recycled to build something else. It might have been rotted away by weather. It could have been eaten away by termites. Any number of things could have happened to it. So after Herod's death, maybe there was no interest in games or theatre. Maybe they thought it was another symbol of Herod's arrogance and his disdain and lack of respect for Jewish culture and pulled it down. It would have been a hell of a lot harder to pull down stone structures after all, so maybe they thought a wooden structure would have been an easier target. We can just set it on fire, we can pull it down and build houses out of it, rather than destroying a massive stone structure that, let's face it, they probably wouldn't have got very far if they tried to. Maybe a wooden structure was just an easier target. Maybe it was something they could channel their hatred and disdain for Herod into. And it was just a hell of a lot easier to destroy. Who knows, just theorizing, just throwing it out there. It also might have been destroyed during the revolt and the siege of Jerusalem. It might have been used during the revolt as something else. Hey, they couldn't. might not have destroyed it at all. They might have turned it into a warehouse or some other structure. So, what happened to it? Did it just disappear without a trace? If it were in the city grounds, especially near the center of the city... What happened to it? You would have think that it would have been a pretty easy target during the revolt and the siege of Jerusalem. Unfortunately, Josephus doesn't give us the answers. He's given us many details and many clues on 
on just about everything else we could want to know about the amphitheater except for the location and what it was made out of. Then again, life's more fun with a couple of mysteries rather than knowing the answers to everything. That also brings up the other question is, was the theater around in Josephus's day or was it gone by then? He does accurately describe it in detail and a lot of his descriptions have led to fines. But is he going on a secondhand account because he wasn't born in Herod's time? He was born about 100 years after. Is he just going on rumor hearsay and handed down stories while he was compiling his histories? Another question you could also ask is, did it disappear during Herod's day? By Josephus's accounts, it sounds like not a lot of people were a big fan of the games or Greek performances. He may have had it ripped down himself or discontinued and used as something else. Who knows? So Roman theatres during the early days, going right through to the later Republic days, were all made out of wood. The first permanent theatre in Rome was built by Pompey in 55 BCE. So here's a quick quote from Joseph Patrick that pretty accurately describes the state of Roman theatres. The first permanent theatre in Rome was built by Pompey in 55 BCE, but in the beginning its stage house was still of wood, and its erection aroused a protest among orthodox circles, according to Vitruvius on Architecture Book 5, 5.7, written in 1630. 16 to 13 BCE. End of quote. It's interesting. So it was pretty late in the game, and there was still a lot of wooden elements being used in Roman theatres. So it makes sense that during Herod's time, they would be wood too. Unlike Greek theatres, which favoured stone construction, the Romans favoured wood. According to Tacitus, this was done so that the crowd would stand and watch rather than sit in a Greek theatre. Romans would stand up as not to get comfortable and stand around all day watching performances. It's pretty interesting. I suppose the big misconception is that we think Roman theatres are the same as Greek. And that's obviously not the case. The Greek theatres were made of stone. They were designed more as a cinema, pretty much, or a playhouse. They were designed for people to go and watch these big, long Greek dramas on a stage where the Roman ones were probably not so focused on a huge all-day performance but more more or less a performance that one could stand up, watch, then go about their daily business. So this is very reminiscent of that scene from Gladiator where Maximus's manservant assistant is in the marketplace watching the play of Maximus and Commodus. If you look at the stage, it's basically a pretty rudimentary wooden structure. There's nothing really that fancy to it. It's just a wooden stage, some curtains, a roof, a back area, and that's pretty much about it. There's just a small crowd standing around out at the front watching the performance. So is that the stock standard Roman stage in those days? Was that more or less common around Rome and Roman territories? Unlike the Greek style, which was you know, made out of stone and was very ornate and more elaborate, it was this the way the Romans did it? Just a rudimentary wooden stage? Who knows, that might, might have been the case. So it sounds like the Romans favoured wood over stone for quite a long period of time. So the Romans went that one step extra at the close of the 3rd century. 
it was still prohibited to make a venue from stone. And after a performance, festivals or games, whatever it was, the stage was pulled down along with the props or set pieces like columns or stone facades. So even though they would have stone elements or mock stone elements in their stage, it was customary to completely break everything down after a performance and maybe there was some reason for that, whether it be political, religious or aesthetic, who really knows? But for whatever it is, the Romans seem to have a gripe against stone theatres until the late 3rd century. It was pretty late in Roman history when they actually started making theatres out of stone. The Balbus Theatre was the, only the second stone venue completed in 13 BCE. Marsilaus was the third being built by Julius Caesar in 11 BC. So this shows how late in the game stone was in Rome. They made a lot of other stuff out of stone, but just not theatres. In 17 BCE, the last recorded wooden theatre was built near the Tiber by Augustus. This style of theatre was also the style during Herod's day, so it's a good chance that Herod's theatre and amphitheatre were probably made out of wood too. So all in all, it was probably made of wood, and the fact that Josephus mentions and praises Herod in Antiquities of the Jews for his stone amphitheatre at Caesarea, which we'll cover in an upcoming show, this gives us a pretty clear indication that it was stone. So we can surmise that the amphitheater in Jerusalem was not made of stone 18 years earlier, otherwise Josephus would have noted it. It's not definitive proof that it was wood, but it gives us a very, very strong indication that there is a very likely chance that it was. Alright, time to move on. Civil projects are done. So let's head on over to Herodium. So now we come to one of Herod's bigger, more personal projects, and that is Herodium. Also known as the Mountain of Little Paradise, or Mount Herodus. Herodium was another one of Herod's masterpieces. It was more or less a fortified palace built on top of a man-made hill in the middle of the desert. Terrain, climate, and rugged conditions were no concern of Herod's. He needed a safe, secure palace fort away from Jerusalem if shit hit the fan. The palace was located 12 kilometers south of Jerusalem and 5 kilometers from the next safe zone of Bethlehem. Herodium was located in the Judean desert, halfway between the Palestinian settlements of Janatar and Zatara and the Israelite settlement of Sidabar. I think I'm saying that right. Remembering all the way back to episode 1 of the epic Saga of Herod, back in 40 BC, when Herod was at war with Antiochus, Antichonus, however you say it, and he had fled Jerusalem and retreated to Masada, where he had sent his wife, sister, and mother during the takeover. On the way, Herod makes a stop at the site that would become Herodium. While he was there, he came up against some local troubles, and he had a few run-ins and fights with Jews who were loyal and supported Antiochus. Antiochus. Not much is known as what might have transpired or if Herod killed these Jews, but Herod comes out on top, and as a way of commemorating his victory, he builds a town naming it after himself. Once again, our trusty friend Josephus weighs in to add some credibility to the argument. This is taken from pages 62 and 63 of Josephus, The Jewish War. 
In his fight, he had less trouble with the Parthians than with the Jews, who harried him all the way. And seven miles from the city began a pitched battle, which lasted quite a long time and ended in their utter defeat. Here, later on, Herod commemorated his victory by building a city, graced with a palace on which no expense was spared, and defended by a citadel of enormous strength. This city he called Herodium, after himself. For the rest of his flight, he was daily joined by large numbers, and at Thracia and Idumea, his brother Joseph met him and advised him to disburden himself of most of his followers, as Masada could never hold so large a number, over 9,000. Herod agreed and sent those and sent those who were of no use to him to various parts of Idumea, providing them with food for their journey, then keeping the toughest fighters as well as his family and close friends. He arrived safely at the fortress, leaving 800 men there to protect the women with provisions sufficient for a siege. He hurried on to Petra in Arabia. The Parthians in Jerusalem turned to looting, breaking into the houses of those who had fled into the palace, and sparing only Harakonassus' money, which did not exceed 300 talents. The total sum found fell short of their expectations, for Herod, long suspicious of Parthian trustworthiness, had already transferred most valuable of his treasure to Idumea, an example followed by all his friends. The looting finished the Parthians. The Parthian conduct became too outrageous that they filled the whole country with war to the death, blotted out the city of Marasia, and after making Antiochus king, actually handed Phasel and Harakonassus over to him in fetters to be tortured. When Harakonassus fell down at his feet, Antiochus, with his own teeth, mutilated his ears, in order that he might never again resume the high priesthood in any circumstance. For high priests must be physically perfect. So there you go. So Herod was on the run from the Parthians. It doesn't give us much detail to the battle or how many people were involved or how many people died. It's a bit vague on the numbers. But he did mention a pitched battle, which must mean there was at least a few hundred, maybe 500 to 1,000 men on both sides. You could probably make the argument that there wasn't that many Parthians. It was a, a force that was tracking him, so it wouldn't have been a huge army. Maybe a couple of hundred, maybe a thousand men at least, tracking Herod and his survivors. If he left 800 men behind, Herod probably had a decent enough sized force, and obviously if they kept continuing, it sounds like the Parthians had matched Herod with the size of their force. So Herodian was built around 23 to 15 BCE. It was built as a palace fort, but also had its own town surrounding it. Herod designed Herodium with one purpose in mind, and that was safety. When Herod escaped from Antiochus all those years ago during his exile from Judah, he found himself in the desert safe from his would-be captors. Like Josephus just alluded to, this is the these are the same events when he set up camp after his on the run from Jerusalem while he's being chased by the Parthians, and this is the same time that his brother was captured and brought to Antiochus. It's on this spot Herod had vowed to build something worthy when he claimed his kingdom. As far as locations go, it's pretty spectacular. It's in the desert, but it's not a 
completely bleak barren desert there's quite a lot of green in the hills and and in the background there's lots of green fields in this desert so it's not like it's in the middle of the sahara there's obviously some type of water source because there's quite a lot of plant life you could also probably assume the weather was probably pretty good pretty reliable obviously it being a desert in the summer it was probably pretty hot but it was pretty stable you probably wouldn't have to worry too much about snow or flooding it would have been a good place to store things you wouldn't have to think worry about things rusting it would have been a good place to store things it would have had that neutral air would have had that dry desert air good for the lungs especially if you were sick it would have been a good place to recover the visibility was good no one could really sneak up on you there you know there were really no rivers or oceans nearby where a large force could land and lay siege to you you had some cover to the hills so if you you know if it was taken over you could retreat back there it was close to bethlehem still close enough to jerusalem but it was closer to bethlehem you could retreat there if you needed supplies or a safe place to lay low for a couple of days it was a pretty decent location for a fort but for all its strategic advantages there was one small problem well small for herod anyway it was mostly flat and didn't offer a view from an elevated position so what did herod do he built an artificial hill in which to build herodium on the hill stood an impressive 2487 feet or 758 meters making it one of the largest hills in the desert the hill was circular and cone-shaped and measured 210 feet across at the base of the hill was the purpose-built town which complemented the fort and rounded out the picturesque scene the cone shape of the hill has been described like a woman's breast that kind of tapers off to the top where it was flattened and then they built the fort it's josephus's words not mine so if you google images of herodium there's a lot of artworks that that elaborate on what herodium might have looked like it's not the largest of herod's buildings but it's still pretty impressive nonetheless there's also the perfect isolated retreat but it at the same time, it was also connected to a town. There, he built a town down the bottom in the plains below Herodium, so he wasn't—he wouldn't have that sense of isolation of him being stuck out in the desert. There were still people down in the town below, even if it was purpose-built to serve Herodium. So, you know, if he was sitting up in his palace and he felt lonely, he could always walk down to the town and greet the locals. There probably wouldn't have been that many people in the town but there probably would have been enough maybe a couple of hundred depending on what time of year it was and if the king was at his palace residence or not there probably would have been the you know, local industry surrounding the place such as farms and distilleries wineries food production on the other hand the town probably would have been a pretty relaxing place to live given that herod probably wasn't there that much he wouldn't have been there that much during the year only when things got tough in jerusalem or he needed a holiday and also when you think about it it's not really that far away it's only 12 kilometers from the biggest city of jerusalem and five kilometers from bethlehem so you're really not stuck out in the middle of nowhere you're kind of in this relaxed halfway point in between the two biggest settlements of the area so long after the roman empire had moved out of judah 
and Herodium fell into dis disrepair. It became somewhat of a tourist attraction during the Middle Ages. The Crusaders travelled there as part of their first holy pilgrimages. During the 16th century, a man named Felix Fabria, an Italian explorer, named the site Frank Mountain or Frank's Hill. He thought or imagined it to be the same site where the Crusaders did battle with Salahuddin, the leader of the Muslim forces during the Second Crusade. Herod's Hill was referred to as Frank's Mountain right up until the 19th century. There had been a few expeditions that paved the way in researching the site. Travelers to the area added their two cents and theories along the way when people started to do academic research on their lands of the Bible. But our old friend Edward Robinson was one of the first to really classify the time periods properly. Robinson identified the site as Herodium based on Josephus' description and narrowed down the time frame to the Roman period, making him the first person to officially name the area as Herodium. Over the years, more and more travellers, archaeologists, researchers and explorers discovered more about the palace, adding to what we know today. This starts in the 1860s and went right through until modern-day excavations were undertaken in the 1960s. It's basically a hundred years it took to really start digging it up and, and doing modern-day research on it. The 1960s were pretty much the first time the site was dug up and excavated properly with modern equipment. It is also what the site more or less looks like today. Even now, research and excavations continue to be done. It now operates as a national park and a tourist attraction. So what did this great palace on a hill look like? Well, once again, Josephus makes the history book's job a little easier. This is another quote from Josephus. The fortress, which is some 60 stida distant from Jerusalem, is naturally strong and very suitable for such a structure. For reasonably nearby is a hill raised to a greater height by the hand of man and rounded off in the shape of a breast. At intervals it has round towers and has a steep ascent formed of 200 steps of hewn stone. Within it are costly royal apartments made for security and for ornate ornatement at the same time. This is the duality of Herod, form and function, luxury and security. That's also something that Josephus mentioned and picks up on. At the base of the hill, there are pleasure grounds built in such a way as to be worth seeing, among other things because of the way in which water, which is lacking in that place, is brought in the form in form, a distance, and a great expense. The surrounding plain was built up as a city second to none, the hill serving as an acropolis for the other dwellings. So Josephus has his unique way of describing things. Interesting to highlight that water was an issue. So you can't get everything perfect. And this was the one thing that was probably the Achilles heel of Herodium, was the water supply. You can also understand why Herod built the city in the giant pool. It was to serve as a backup water supply if need be. I'll tell you what, Josephus does a good job for Herodian tourism. The way he describes these sites and the details he goes into, it really makes you want to go out and see these sites for yourself. 
So fitting with what we know about Herod's building style, Herodium was functional, lavish, symmetrical, aesthetically pleasing, and had safety and comfort in mind. You also see a large variety of shapes being used in Herodian architecture. Herod liked to use different shapes for different projects. The temple was rectangular, Masada was asymmetrical in the fact that it, that it used the natural geography. Caesarea Maritima favoured ovals, his fort palace in Jerusalem was square, and Herodium was a circle. So Herod, does Herod have a love of shapes? Do you know, was he trying different shapes to find out what worked, or was he just trying different shapes for the hell of it? Did he have a, an obsession with symmetricality? And shapes and the way they could be used in architecture. Was he trying to do the, you know, triangle? Was he trying to use rectangles, squares, circles? Was he trying to incorporate as many shapes as possible? Or were the shapes dictated by the landscape and the areas he had to build on? It makes you wonder. So I think Herod might have had an obsession with symmetry. He was obviously very concerned with aesthetically pleasing buildings as well as symmetrical and functional ones. Herod also mastered many things while he built Jerusalem. He, he always used stone. His building projects were always massive and elaborate projects. And he even utilized nature itself. He wasn't faced with building a hill fort, palace in the desert. It was a strategic location. It's a key position between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. It was also very safe and offered a 360-degree view of the region. You know, no army could sneak up on you. But he really didn't seem to care that it was out in the middle of the desert. It could have been on the top of a mountain or in the bottom of a river, and he still would have found a way to build it. He wasn't phased by what he had to work with, or the environment, the terrain, the landscape, or the people. If he was going to build something, he was going to build it. If Herod was alive in the modern day, he'd be the most revered, and admired architect of the day. I could see him like building a Las Vegas, taking a blank slate out in the desert and just building whatever he wanted on it. He'd also probably have some of the most unique, uniquely designed and well-built buildings in the world. So like his other buildings, there were towers, pools, and palaces. The only issue with Herodium is that he couldn't go as big as he usually did. There were certain physical limitations, obviously, that had to be obeyed. At the same time, the longevity of the site speaks volumes for the quality of the construction. Pretty much all of Herod's buildings are still standing today, apart from the ones that were destroyed by the Romans, or, destro or destroyed later by the Christian and Muslim armies going at it in the Crusades, or destroyed later on, or destroyed later on in history by the Crusades. The longevity of the site speaks volumes. It's still there. I mean, Herodium is in pretty good shape. It still looks very good. It isn't crumbling or falling to pieces like a lot of English, like a lot of ancient sites. It's preserved out there in the desert all by itself. It's away from everything. Herod couldn't go as big as he wanted, but at the same time, I think if Herodium was bigger, it probably would have fallen down or become unstable due to earth movement or basically due to the sheer size. I'm not sure how much of a how big a man-made hill could be before it becomes unstable. Maybe that's not a factor. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. 
but Herodium doesn't become unstable like a lot of bigger sites have over the years. But then again, a lot of those a lot of those sites aren't as well made either, and that's really a testament to the quality and construction. Herod also had to take into account weather conditions and resources such as food and water, water being the big one, and the environment. You know, was it hot? Was it cold? Did it drop 20 degrees at night? Was it in the, you know, the mid 40s or you know, 100 degrees Celsius during the day? These are things that would have had to be taken into consideration for safety. Even though it was in the desert, it was built on the edge of the desert. So maybe the conditions were a lot milder than they would have been if it was in the middle of the desert. Maybe that's also another reason why it was a little smaller. It, it was probably easier to heat and cool than a larger environment, than a larger building. On the other hand, this is Herod we're talking about. So even though he couldn't go as big as he usually did, it still had to be worthy of him. So he compensated for grand even if the location was impractical. Go big if you go small. Herodium was more or less two parts, an upper fort and palace and a lower town, which is around 38 acres. The town was made up of buildings and gardens that were placed around a large pool. It was 70 meters long by 46 meters wide and about 3 meters deep. The pool got its water from Solomon's pools. And it also shows you the engineering genius that Solomon's pools were. These pools provided water to the middle of the desert. So the supply chain of water was very important. That is a very life-saving source of water. It provided the temple, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Herodium. That's, it's pretty impressive. And that's why I mentioned before, I, th I think it was Herod that built Solomon's pools and not Solomon. He intended it to supply his palaces, but at the same time, a smaller pool could have been built by Solomon that was expanded upon, but I'm guessing rambling, so let's move on. The pool had a couple of different functions. One obviously was for swimming and entertaining. The other was for the main source of water for the town. The pool was pretty cool. There were a series of rooms next to the pool, one of which was a caladium or hot room that was powered by a hippocast. Basically, a room built a few feet off the floor that allowed hot air to be circulated around the room, more or less providing you with a heated floor. A lot of geometric and floral tiles have been found in excavations at Herodium that tell us a lot about the artistry of the tiles and the decorations. So Herodium is also believed to be the burial site of King Herod. Netzar in 2007 had a found a pyramidical shaped a pyramid a pyramidical shaped series of stones that he thinks might have been Herod's tomb. From 1972, excavations were carried out by Ehud Netzer, working on behalf of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Netzer had been working at the site as the main archaeologist right up until his death in 2010. Netzer was responsible for excavating most of the lower palace and the base of the hill. That was a small quote from Wikipedia about Ehud Netzer. I don't do all my research off Wikipedia, if you were wondering. It's just a good place to start, and it's a good place to find out about, about people like this, who there's not a lot of information out there unless you are doing some really, really deep dives. As of 2014, there is some debate to whether the site is the burial place of Herod and his sons as it wasn't grand enough to belong to Herod or either of his sons. 
I think the main argument is due to the sarcophaguses being found were made out of a common red granite instead of a fancier stone like marble or diorite. I think the red granite was pretty reasonably easily sourced from the area. It could have been, you know, maybe they ran out of money or resources. But yeah, who who really knows? So enough about Lower Herodium, time for the Upper part of Herodium. Once again, Herod blends his love of palaces and forts. The palace fort was circular in shape and sat on the artificial hill. The palace had it all, it had safety, it had comfort, and a good 360 degree view from the top. The fort had two concentric circular walls, an outer and an inner, separated by a two and a half meter space in between. The outer wall was a massive 30 meters high, with the whole structure being around seven stories high. The walls went deep into the foundations and like the stoa, contained a vaulted underground area which, with an arched shaped roof. The entirety of the wall ran about 62 meters around. It surrounded the entirety of the courtyard. The walls also went higher than the palace, shielding it from anyone or any would-be attacker. Even though it wasn't as big or as grand as some of Herod's other palaces, palace forts, there was more than enough room for all the necessities and some luxuries. You know, the town also would have supported the fort. It would have obviously been the main food provider and supplied Herod with all the luxuries that he wanted. The seven stories were separated with wooden ceilings and designated rooms for servants, storage and soldiers. A Herodian fort wasn't complete without towers and we all know and we all know by now how Herod loved his towers. There were four in total. This is why I think the Antonia did have four towers and not one because he uses the four tower method over and over again in his architecture. He always has four, usually four central points. And like going back to the stoa and to the temple, he, he has this love of four by four symmetry. The Eastern Tower, the Eastern Tower stood at a whopping 18 meters wide and was made from solid stone. It was higher than the other three and was the primary defensive tower. And obviously it was bigger, so it was obviously intended for surveillance. It sat up higher, you could see more. It was the main defensive tower and would have provided the best chance of seeing anyone coming from afar. It was also, like everything, dual purpose. It was the most luxurious of the towers and was most likely the center for royal business. The Eastern Tower also housed the royal entourage and had a large roof and defensive level that towered above the fortress and overlooked the entire area. The three remaining towers came in at a smaller 16 meters in diameter, continuing containing several levels for personnel and storage. In short, the entire site was compact but spacious. According to some sort according to various sources, the hill was constructed after the fort was built. It's often thought that a mix of skilled builders Masons, engineers, architects, construction experts, and slaves built Herodium. The hill was built by packing an earthen rampart up against the foundations and walls, leaving a space for the main gate, obviously. However, there was a catch. You would have to climb a steep, narrow staircase and enter via a corridor to access the gate. It's a very clever and deceptive way to throw people off of entering the fort. You would 
probably be riding around it with a horse or walking around it trying to find the entry point. It also makes it hard to find at night if you're trying to sneak up on someone. You can't exactly set up a plan to go get a battering ram and knock down the main gate if you can't find it. It also probably created an optical illusion. It would have looked like there was no entry entryway or it was hidden or camouflaged into the rock. Once you had climbed a steep and narrow staircase, you had to enter via a corridor to access the gate. It's a very clever design. It also prevents a large invading force from storming the gates of the fort. It also adds another layer of protection. Water was an issue, and like the temple, large cisterns were cut into the rock outside of the fort that channeled water from the hillside and rain into the cisterns. Unlucky servants had to manually fill up buckets of water and take them up and down the stairs to the cistern inside of the fort. This was uh, done daily. It also it would have been a. They also would have kept kept the cisterns full all the time, so there, there would have been a constant need for servants to go up and down all day with buckets filling them up with water. So even though Herod's quarters were small in in comparison to his other palaces, no luxuries were spared. Herod's palace was lavishly decorated with the most artistic paintings on the walls and the finest and most vibrantly colored flooring tiles and modern conveniences. The eastern side had a splendid garden measuring 41 times 18 meters. The garden was flanked on three sides by porticos, which were supported by rows of columns. The western side was two stories high, just to add a bit more splendor. The ground floor had a hole had a hall that was supported by columns, with a second level on top of that that was supported by more columns holding up the roof. The rest of the fort had all the usual features, bathhouses, courtyards, decorations, Roman theatre and and the like. It's time for a little trivia. And this is uh, something I found in doing the research. This is you know, taken off of Wikipedia. So it's called the Pilot Ring. In 1968 and 1967, during excavations directed by archaeologist Gideon Forrester at the section of Herod's burial tomb and palace, hundreds of artifacts were found, including a copper alloy ring. The ring was overlooked, but in 2018, it was given a thorough laboratory cleaning and scholarly examination. At the center of the ring is engraved Handleless Amphora of Herodium, which is encircled by partly deformed Greek letters spelling out pilots in Greek. Although scientists were not sure who is the pilots mentioned on the ring, media published that it could possibly belong to the one and only Pontius Pilate. Archaeologist Rio Porat told that told that all explanations are equally possible for who was the owner of the ring. It was important to publish a careful scientific article, but in practice we have a ring inscribed with a name, pilot, and personal connections just cry out. While much of the debate has focused on the Greek name inscribed on the ring, the image is of equal significance and may further support that this was the ring used by the administrative assistant for Pilate for sealing Sealing the documents of Governor Pontius Pilate, the image on the ring is also possibly associated with Roman religious ceremonies. The imperial cult that were characterized on the images of coins that Pilate had minted during his term as governor. Interesting. Interesting but pointless information. 
So, as I mentioned before, Herodium is believed to be the burial place of Herod. On May 8, in 2007, Ehud Netzer reported that he had indeed found the tomb of Herod. Netzer finds the tomb above the water pools and tunnels on the flat side leading up to the fort, about halfway up the hill. Excavations began and some convincing finds were unearthed, lending some credence to the site that the great king was buried there. So you fast forward the excavations done in 09 and 010. The digs uncovered a 450-seat theatre near the burial site. Unfortunately, Netzer fell while working on the site and died from his injuries sustained from the fall a few days later, which in turn closed the area to the public. After his death in 2013, Joseph Patrick and Benjamin Arubis, archaeologists, disputed the find, claiming it was too modest for a man such as Herod, based on a few details, such as the type and quality of the stone, that being the red granite, and that the tomb was more or less too small, it being normal-sized. Maybe he just ran out of money, maybe he didn't care about his own funeral, maybe he didn't care about his own tomb or sarcophagus, maybe he just wanted to put... Maybe he just wanted to put all his time and effort into building Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Maybe he didn't care for his glory and death. Maybe he thought he had done enough in life and left his legacy in stone. Maybe it was just irrelevant and a waste to waste good stones on a tomb. Who knows? It's just my own personal thought on that, but... Maybe they just run out. Maybe he he suddenly died and that was the only stone available to him at the time. Maybe they they had to just use red granite because it was the only thing available. Maybe they he died there and they couldn't go back to Jerusalem and source finer stones. And they obviously couldn't preserve the bodies for that long. Oh, actually, no, they could. Maybe he needed to be buried within a certain time limit. Who really knows? Maybe he didn't care about his tomb and it was all about the city. Or simply, maybe he just didn't think about it. A man named Rio Porat, I mentioned him just before, took over excavations after Netz's death and defends the claims made by Arubris and Patrich. All in all, just like every other one of Herod's projects, Herodian was bold, lavish, grand, functional, and a masterpiece in its own right. Alright, that brings us to the end of the show. Coming up on part 7 of the epic saga of King Herod, we'll be looking at the legendary Masada, Caesarea Maxima, and a few more of his building projects, and hopefully that will round out all the buildings that Herod ever made, because I want to be 100% thorough and detailed. There'll be a final episode on Herod, where we'll see the final days, the collapse of his empire, and his legacy. So I hope you all stick around for that the next one will be coming out in a couple of weeks after the epic saga of herod is done we'll be moving on to something else got some good shows planned for the rest of the year i'm trying to produce shows quicker and get them released in a couple of weeks rather than one a month at this stage it's just very hard trying to balance everything and try to do the research record and edit it takes a hell of a lot of time so i appreciate your patience a big thank you to everyone who downloaded and listened I really appreciate it. If you'd like to help the Truth Tank grow, there's a couple of things you can do. Subscribe to the podcast 
on your preferred podcast provider or all of them. You can tell friends, family about the show, people at work, people on the bus, strangers in the street. Help get the word out there. Join the Facebook page for all the latest updates on what's happening with the show. If you would like to see The Truth Tank on other social media platforms, hit me up on the Facebook page and I'll take it into consideration. Until then, I am The Tank. This is The Truth. May the truth be with you.